Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Uh, we're back again today talking about the Gemini program in the fall of 1965. Spent a lot of the last episode talking about the problem of rendezvous and docking and discussing why it had popped to the top of everyone on the Gemini program's list as the next big problem that had to be solved. We also talked a little bit about the fact that one of the big question marks about rendezvous was the fact that the procedure for doing it on orbit was still pretty much all theoretical. But we also talked a little bit about the other major question mark in the minds of NASA program managers, which was the status of the Agena target vehicle, which was to function as the rendezvous target for the Gemini spacecraft. This was because what had been sold to NASA by the U.S. Air Force and Lockheed as an off-the-shelf solution had turned out to require um, some major redesign. Last episode, we talked about the fact that the Agena target vehicles uh, required the development of basically two new propulsion systems, the main rocket engine and the smaller but still quite powerful orbital maneuvering system. This redesign had been necessitated by the fact on the Gemini program that the Agena was actually going to be quite a bit more than just a target vehicle. I mean, early on, one of the really attractive features of Agena to NASA was that it was actually usually used to place U.S. Air Force satellites on orbit, which meant that it actually had a significant payload capacity, a payload capacity that wasn't really going to be used when it functioned as a target vehicle for Gemini. That is, unless that payload capacity could be used um, maybe to take fuel on orbit, maybe a significant amount of fuel, actually more fuel than Gemini could carry on its own meaning that once docked with the Gemini capsule, the Agena could use that extra fuel to make it into a Gemini reboost vehicle. Using this reboost capacity would give mission planners and the crew much more scope for maneuvering on orbit. This was actually quite a big deal, because to date, on both the Mercury and Gemini programs, one of the most significant constraints on the flight plans had been the amount of fuel available for maneuvering. The Mercury capsules had, often, had barely enough fuel to maintain continuous attitude control during their relatively short missions. It had been a big enough problem on John Glenn's first orbital mission that mission controllers had seriously considered ending the mission an orbit early. The problem, of course, was that running out of fuel was a risk that simply had to be avoided. I mean, you know, running out of fuel in an aircraft is a really bad thing. But when it happens, the pilot still has options. I mean, every pilot spends a significant amount of training time thinking about and preparing for the day when the engine no longer works. Uh, usually this involves learning to identify an alternate landing site that can be reached by gliding. Uh, for military pilots, it might also involve having to eject from their aircraft. Either way, the pilot of an out-of-fuel aircraft knows that they will get back to Earth <laughs> one way or another. Now, the same is actually not true for an astronaut on orbit. For a spacecraft on orbit, a minimum amount of fuel is needed to get home because thrust is required to slow the spacecraft down to the point where its orbit will fall into the atmosphere. Now, once it does, atmospheric friction will do the rest, but still, 
a minimum amount of fuel is required to perform the deorbit burn. If that fuel is not available, then the spacecraft is not coming home, at least not anytime soon. And anytime soon means in a time frame that would prevent the crew on orbit from freezing or starving to death. So, yeah, no one wanted to take any kind of chances uh, with having enough gas to come home. Which meant not only that maneuvering was strictly limited to budget fuel, but also that the kinds of maneuvers that could be performed were strictly constrained to ensure that the spacecraft, by and large, stayed in an orbit that was relatively easy in terms of fuel usage to come home from. This meant the orbits were fairly low and also elliptical, such that there was a place in the orbit where a very small amount of deceleration, usually at the apogee, would bring the perigee of the orbit into the atmosphere. These limitations were frustrating for NASA engineers because there was still a lot about orbital flight dynamics that, you know, they had never tested. And every time they did get a chance to uh, stretch their analytical legs a little bit, they learned something. (laughs) The limitations on maneuvering, though, were particularly galling to the crew. I mean, let's face it, they were all test pilots. More than anything, they wanted to get out in space and fly their spacecraft. In much the same way as the engineers on the ground, they really wanted to figure out how flying a spacecraft would really work. Even as early as Gemini 4, the crew had been advocating for relaxing the flight rules so that they didn't have to fly a fail-safe orbit and so that they would have more opportunities to actually maneuver on orbit. Their argument was that fail-safe orbits had originally been proposed when the performance of the Gemini spacecraft's uh, orbital maneuvering system had been a big question mark. By the time of Gemini 4, the astronauts argued, those questions had been answered, and so the rules could and should be relaxed. Eh, But NASA management uh, begged to differ, and they got the final vote. So Jim McDivitt and Ed White had spent the better part of three of their four days on orbit just drifting. Uh, Much more passengers in their spacecraft than pilots of it. Gordon Cooper and Pete Conrad had done the same, but in their case it had been for almost all of their full eight-day mission. All of which is to say that there was a lot of appetite for finding a way to lift the constraints on maneuvering on orbit, and Agena with its fuel tanks and now very capable human-rated propulsion system offered that opportunity. And all of which of that is to say that Agena not only needed brand new engines, it needed a way to let the crew on orbit use those engines to maneuver the combined spacecraft on orbit once they were docked. And that was actually a bigger deal than you might think living here in 2022. You see, I mean, we live in a world where we are entirely used to having digital computers around us. They sit on our desks, or in our laps, or obviously in our hands, or maybe even on our wrists. We're also quite used to the fact that these digital computers can not only talk to us, but to other similar devices pretty much anywhere around the world. And this happens seamlessly, literally thousands of times a day. Well, actually, probably hundreds of thousands of times every hour, if not every minute. Now, this level of communication between digital devices is just something we completely take for granted. (laughs) But this was not at all so in 1965. Seriously, even for someone who is there, and I was, although barely, It takes an effort to remember how the world worked in 1965. In 1965, a computer was something the size of a room, literally. Computers had their own rooms. At least computers that were capable of doing any significant amount of computation did. 
NASA used such computers to do the complicated calculations that were required to compute things like rendezvous trajectories and the associated burn programs for the rendezvous process that I described in the last episode. Doing such calculations might take minutes or, or even hours, and it took one computer to solve one of these problems at a time. So NASA had multiple computers, each of which basically had its own room in mission control. Care and feeding of these beasts was a very specialized discipline. Uh, today, uh, we're used to having computers that literally anyone can use, but in 1965, there was no sense that computers could or should be used by anyone other than an expert trained in their use. And if you read Gene Kranz's autobiography, you get a strong sense of this. Uh, even up through the days of Apollo, he clearly sees computers as important resources to help flight controllers do their jobs, but you also get the sense that he really doesn't trust them, and you certainly get the sense that he has no desire whatsoever to have anything more to do with the computer than he absolutely has to. I mean, consider the fact that in 1965, the primary user interface to a computer was a paper punch card, or rather, a stack of paper punch cards. That's right, we're not even talking about the dreaded command line interface on a terminal screen. That kind of interface to a computer was literally still years away. In 1965, if you wanted to have a computer, well, compute something, you powered it up and fed it a stack of 2-inch by 6-inch paper cards that you had prepared using a card punch machine. The computer then read the position of the punched holes in the card and tra translated those holes into instructions. There was no operating system, no programs that were already installed. There were no apps. Literally, every time you wanted to do a new calculation, you had to feed the deck of cards into the computer. The cards would contain not only the instructions, but also all of the data that was needed to complete the calculation. Once the calculation was complete, the computer would print the results on paper. So, effectively, the only way to pass information from one computer to another was to take a paper copy produced by one computer, transcribe the data onto punch cards by hand, and then feed those cards by hand into the next computer. That was the 1965 version of seamless connectivity. Speaking of connectivity, it's also important to recall the state of communications technology in 1965. Now, things had come a long way in the five years since NASA had started setting up the Mercury Global Network. And recall in those days, most of the remote stations could only be reached by high-frequency radio signals, um, and effectively teletype was the means of communications. Now, because underwater cables that could carry telephone signals were available in 1960, but there were only very few of them connecting major centers like London and New York, and there were very few connections between the various exchanges. Placing a long-distance telephone call still probably involved the personal intervention of at least one operator who had to physically move the wires to patch the call through. I mean, in fact, one of the more important nodes in the NASA network in the early days was the communications center at the Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland, which actually was the place where all of the networks were connected together as and when they were required uh, very much by humans in that loop. Now, in 1965, uh, even NASA, a space agency, had yet to use a satellite to relay communications between its various remote sites. It would actually not do so for the first time until later in the Gemini program. So all of this matters when it comes to thinking about what NASA wanted to do with the Agena spacecraft. Uh, the idea of having one spacecraft control another was actually the stuff of science fiction 
1965, and not at all the realm of engineering fact. Uh, to continue to put it in perspective, we also need to remember what we mean by an onboard computer in the context of 1965. We are entirely used to and comfortable with having computers control various functions of the machines we interact with on a daily basis, I mean, including our cars, certainly in the airplanes we fly. We're used to computers that, through an array of sensors, are connected not only to the machine they control, but also to the world around them. I mean, in fact, we're quite used to computers that are able to sense things that are beyond our perception. I mean, even something as mundane as the thermostat in your house senses small changes in temperature trend that most people wouldn't even be aware of. The bottom line is that we're used to computers that sense, react, and control um, the many of the machines around us all the time and continuously. Once again, this was not so in 1965. In those days, computers were less like brains with complete sensory attached. Um, really, the onboard computers in 1965 were just kind of digital command sequencers, which actually isn't surprising, because at least at NASA, that was the job they'd been designed to replace. I mean, one of the more complicated and complex features of the Mercury capsule had been its sequencing system. Uh, at the time, this was a set of mechanical and electrical interlocks that ensured that multiple events happened at the right time and always in the right order. The sequencing system ensured that switches were closed in the right order and at the right time, and that then they couldn't be opened unless that was done in the right order. Now, this was partly for safety, to ensure that procedures followed a safe sequence, but it was also for accuracy, to ensure that things were always in the same configuration every time a system was used. But it was also not only mind-numbingly complex, it was also literally hardwired so that the sequences that were designed from the very first Mercury capsule couldn't be redone without massive engineering effort, even when it became clear that there might be better ways of doing things. So this was one of the things that the engineers on Mercury most wanted to change about the Mercury capsule when Gemini started. And the way they fixed it was by using an onboard computer. By using a programmable digital computer, all of the sequencing could be handled by programming the computer and then having it execute the commands to various systems in the right order, which was much more flexible than the idea of hardwiring it all mechanically and electrically. Now, understand that the way the computer sent those commands was by sending discrete commands, usually in the form of a single electrical signal wire, to an electrical or mechanical device that would basically turn on or off based on those commands. I mean, we talked a bit about this kind of system when we talked to Mac Evans back in season two in the episode that I called The Flag is a One. In that episode, Mac described a system uh, on the ground used to talk to the communication technology satellite. And this is almost a decade later from 1965, by the way. But even then, in order to control the satellite, the ground was restricted to a finite set of commands coded in octal. Given that those commands were either two or three characters long, it meant that there was a total of either 64 or 256 possible commands, I'm guessing, but it was something like that. At any rate, if the ground wanted the satellite to do something, they would choose uh, from the list of appropriate command words, or they'd make a sequence of words, and then they'd send those, those to the satellite's onboard computer, and the satellite's onboard computer would execute the commands. Now, those commands would be things like open the reactant valve to tank one. 
the command would cause the computer to send a signal to the requisite piece of hardware, and the satellite would be controlled. The computer was capable of very limited sensing, mostly by reading the state of various valves or switches, hence uh, actually the name of the episode, because at the end of the episode, the team cheers when the computer reports that the bit, denoting the state of the stuck valve, flips from a zero, which meant closed, to a one, which meant open. So, the job of allowing a Gina to be modified to be controllable from the Gemini spacecraft once they were docked takes on a bit of a different complexion than it would in today's world. Today, the job would be accomplished by designing ways for a computer onboard Gemini to talk to the computer onboard Agena. The humans in the loop onboard Gemini would make high-level inputs through their controllers uh, in their spacecraft, and the two computers would work out the low-level details of how to respond in the way that was expected. This was not at all what was implied by the same statement in 1965. In actual fact, what needed to be done there was to modify Agena with a new command and control system that would allow for control modes whereby it could respond to command signals coming directly from the Gemini spacecraft. These signals would be carried on hardwired lines that led to the Agena docking adapter and through connectors that mated with connectors on Gemini when the spacecraft were docked. The right-hand seat of the Gemini spacecraft was set up so that when connection was made, a set of controllers there would send flight control signals directly to the Agena flight computer that would then send those commands to its thrusters, and the Gemini astronaut would, in effect, be flying the Agena. As I said, in order for that to work, the Agena first had to be put in a mode where it was using the inputs from the docking adapter instead of, for instance, its own internal programming or commands from the ground. The whole system was also a little bit fraught, because unlike a modern digital networking interface, the interface from Gemini to Agena really only functioned in one direction. Uh, the astronaut hand controllers sent signals to Agena, but there was no, no telemetry that was sent from Agena to Gemini. In fact, only the ground could actually read the Agena tem telemetry directly. The astronauts would only have the instruments on board the Gemini spacecraft and their own senses to figure out what the Agena was doing. All of which digression is just to set the stage for why this new command and control or CNC system for the Agena was not in any way a minor modification to an off-the-shelf product. It was a mission-critical and a safety-critical system. And the new CNC system was really the heart and soul of the new Agena target vehicle that allowed it to work in concert with Gemini. But given how little actual control the astronauts would have over the Agena systems, and more critically, how little insight they would have into what Agena was actually doing, the CNC system was definitely safety critical. It was, in fact, just as critical as the new engines on Agena entirely possible for the Agena CNC system to malfunction in ways that would put the mission and the crew in extreme danger. If the CNC system did not transfer control properly to Gemini once it was docked, the astronauts could liter literally become captive passengers on aboard a vehicle they did not control. More critically, if they were out of contact with the ground, they might find themselves in a situation where they were fighting the controls on Agena and losing as it responded to its own programming instead of to their commands. 
Uh, this, by the way, is a bit of foreshadowing because acute sensitivity to this possibility actually caused some significant issues on Gemini 8, but um, we'll get to that eventually. Finally, the other thing that the preceding explanation implies is that the last modification to the Agena, the docking adapter, was also a piece of critical engineering that would need to be carefully tested because it was not simply a mechanical interface between the two spacecraft. Um, and a mechanical interface, by the way, would have been bad enough because it's a bit of a truism in the space industry that if there's one thing that spacecraft engineers have a nearly toxic aversion to, it's mechanical interfaces. This mainly stems from the fact that the environment of space is so different than on the ground that understanding exactly how mechanical mechanisms are going to work once they're in space is always kind of difficult. The problem is that all mechanical interfaces are affected by their thermal environment, not just how hot and cold they are, but also how heat is transmitted from one mechanism to another. Now, all of this functions totally different in space, not only because the thermal environment is so extreme, but also because with no atmosphere, the pathways of heat flow are entirely different than what we're used to on the ground. Vacuum itself also brings its own challenges because, of course, mechanical systems are affected by pressure, in particular by differences in pressure, and sometimes those differences actually only appear when the mechanism is placed in vacuum. Finally, the problem with mechanical interfaces is that if they don't work, if they fail, there's always a possibility that they will damage some other part of the spacecraft in ways that can't be fixed on orbit. So a simple mechanical interface between Gemini and Agena would have been enough of a concern on its own. In this case, however, that mechanical interface also carried electrical interfaces that were critical to the proper functioning of the joined spacecraft, meaning that the docking adapter was not merely a mechanical latch, it was also a series of electrical connectors, all of which had to mate seamlessly in order for Gemini to successfully and safely attach to the Gemini Agena target vehicle, and all of which is again a very long-winded way of saying that even once the brand new rocket engines on the Agena test vehicle had been cleared, there was still a long way to go before the Agena target vehicle could be cleared for use with the Gemini spacecraft. Which is why, even though the first Agena test vehicle was assembled and ready for testing, a full year before it was going to be required, it still came down to the wire as, whether, as to whether or not it was going to be ready on time for its first date with Destiny and a Gemini spacecraft, which was scheduled for October the 25th of 1965. The first test vehicle had, in fact, been assembled and delivered for testing in September of 1964. As testing progressed, it became apparent that the new CNC system just didn't seem to work very well. In fact, it was eventually determined that the whole system really needed to be pulled from the vehicle and completely redesigned. While that was being done, the Agena vehicle was moved to a test hand for captive firing testing. Uh, in this test, the Agena would be mated to a simulated Gemini spacecraft, and then it would have its thrusters test fired. This was the first time that such tests had been attempted, and in fact, the first time that an attempt had been made to mate both sides of the docking interface. <laughs> and the problem was that they didn't fit together. Eventually, the engineers managed to get them to fit together, but only by shifting them to a configuration where the electrical connections didn't match. So, it was back to the drawing board again. 
By now, it was 1965, and the Gemini flight program was moving ahead at speed. Although the rendezvous mission had been moved well down the sequence, the Janey test vehicle had managed to find its way back onto the critical path, even for that later mission. It was not until May that the first Gemini Agena target vehicle, officially dubbed GATV-5001, was delivered to the Cape. And then it failed its acceptance inspection. NASA found that it suffered from some basic production quality defects that meant it just wasn't fit for spaceflight. Luckily, all of the redesign and testing delays had added so much time to the first vehicle's schedule that the second vehicle, GATV-5002, for those of you who are keeping score, was so close behind it that it arrived at the Cape in time to be prepared for the planned 25 October launch date. So, NASA finally had a target vehicle, and Wally Schirra and Tom Stafford had a launch date. In fact, there were some other parts of NASA that were probably um, genuinely thankful, though, that Agena had been pushing the rendezvous schedule um, to the right for a while. In particular, the flight control team had needed pretty much all of that time to get themselves ready for Gemini 6, and there were a couple of reasons for this. The first, of course, was planning the rendezvous procedures in and of themselves. Uh, I talked about that a lot in the last episode. Those procedures were going to rely heavily on controllers on the ground and on their ability to generate up-to-date trajectory information and provide accurate burn program data to the crew as they approached the target vehicle. And because all of this was brand new, it had required more than a little discussion to plan out exactly how it was going to work. At one point in the process, the astronauts had complained that the rendezvous process actually relied far too heavily on the ground and on automated computations. And to that really left little for the crew to do other than check transferring the numbers into the flight computer. But in the end, a procedure had been agreed to, and Buzz Aldrin, the resident expert on rendezvous, had been assigned as the lead Capcom for the mission so he could watch as the crew put his theories to the test. Now, the other issue that the flight controllers were having to confront was a bit more mundane, but nonetheless critical, and that was figuring out how to actually control two spacecraft at the same time. I mean, it, it might not be obvious, but there were a startling array of little details about mission control that just inherently assumed that there'd only be one vehicle operating at a time. I mean, right down to deciding what mission clock should be displayed. I mean, did the mission start when Agena launched or when Gemini did? I mean, it sounds trivial, but even that small detail cascaded into a host of others, including the timing of the flight control shifts. I mean, there were separate controllers for the Agena spacecraft. But did the whole team arrive at their consoles based on the Agena launch schedule? Or were there separate ones for Gemini and Agena? This and countless other details had to be uncovered, discussed, and decisions made, disseminated, and <laughs> probably defended over the months as Mission Control prepared to launch um, Gemini 6. But launch day finally arrived. The plan called for Agena to launch one orbit, or about 90 minutes ahead of Gemini. Now, the Gemini countdown was such that Shira and Stafford actually boarded their capsule about 15 minutes before Agena launched. So they were still in the process of conducting their own countdown when Agena's countdown clock reached zero at 10 o'clock in the morning. At first, the launch looked good. And this wasn't actually a surprise for NASA. I mean, 
While there were still many issues about Agena that didn't inspire a great deal of confidence, launch wasn't one of them. I mean, after all, the Atlas-Agena combination had launched more than 140 times. Surely none of the changes that NASA had made would affect that part of the flight, right? Wrong. Oh, so very wrong. Unbeknownst to everyone on the ground, one of the design changes that had been made to the Agena's main propulsion system would have a profound effect on its ability to get to orbit. You see, in the original Agena design, the Agena's main rocket was started in a particular sequence. Basically, this sequence consisted of flooding the combustion chamber with oxidizer before introducing the fuel. Remember, these were what are called hypergolic fuels, so that as soon as they mixed, they would ignite. So this had always worked well, but it was very wasteful of the oxidizer. Now, when the engine had only been restarted once or twice, wasting some oxidizer wasn't really an issue. But if that same engine was going to be started as many as five times or maybe even more, uh, as it was planned for some of the Gemini missions, all of those start sequences would mean that the oxidizer would end up being depleted long before the fuel was. So, Agena engineers had changed the start sequence to introduce the fuel first, and then the oxidizer. Now, to be fair, initially this had caused some fears that the engine would be prone to a uh, hard start, uh, which is effectively rocket engineers speak for a more or less uncontrolled explosion instead of smooth combustion, by the way. Now, the engine had been tested on the ground, and it had been tested even in a partial vacuum, and the system worked fine in those tests, but the engine apparently had not been tested at the level of vacuum that was experienced by Agena when it separated from its Atlas booster on the 25th of October, and flight controllers gave it the command to start its own engine to complete its flight to orbit. Immediately upon issuing this command, the Agena telemetry stream stopped. And radar reported that it seemed to be tracking five separate objects rather than one booster and one spacecraft. Within six minutes of launch, it was pretty clear to the launch control team that they were in deep trouble. And it took another 45 minutes to finally declare that all hope had been lost when Paul Haney, the public affairs officer, announced formally to the world that we have had a conversation with the Carnavon tracking station. Their report keeps coming back. No joy. No joy. The mission was scrubbed. Wally Sharon and Tom Stafford were taken out of their Gemini capsule. NASA's wild ride to rendezvous was not over yet. But, dear listeners, this episode of Terranauts is over, so that's where we're going to have to leave it for today. We'll pick up the story in the next episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.